You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 22nd of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today... I mean, this is 110 pages long. It has 125 pages of explanatory notes. The idea that you can really briskly go through something this fundamental is quite extraordinary. And I think there could be a loss for the government on the timetabling, and that would really cause problems. My guests Enrico Franceschini and Vincent McAvinney will discuss Boris Johnson's final attempt to get politicians on his side to take the UK out of the EU. And some of the day's other news, including... Justin Trudeau was punished in Canada's election, losing ground following two scandals. We'll ask how he can move forward with his progressive agenda and what the result means for populist politics globally as well. And would a green number plate for cars do anything to move the debate forward on curbing emissions? Plus... From London to Lebanon and Chile to Hong Kong, people of all political stripes have massed to be heard. But can such meetings add up to meaningful change? We'll ask how political chaos affects the art of protest. I'm Tom Edwards. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined on our news panel today by Vincent McAvinney, UK correspondent for Euronews, and Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica. We're heading down the road to Westminster first, where the British PM, Boris Johnson, is launching another attempt to take the UK out of the EU by the end of the month. However, many members of the House of Commons have complained they haven't had enough time to scrutinise Johnson's proposals. Vincent, I'll come to you first of all. Well-versed, we like to think, in in all of these goings-on. Where exactly are we up to? Still more claim and counterclaim, people saying, we can leave, we can't, there is time, there isn't. What's happening today? Well, I mean, it looks as though if the Prime Minister does get to the second uh, reading, he has the numbers to get his withdrawal uh, agreement bill through the House of Commons. Uh, He has got further than Theresa May has. It is going to be, though, the test as to whether or not the scheduling bill, so the scheduling motion, to do this rapid timetable, really, of getting it through the House of Commons, through the House of Lords at the weekend, to the Queen by next Monday, in order to get all then the necessary legislation that they need through and it has to go off to the European Parliament and be approved there as well by that October 31st deadline. It is going to be rapid. There are some people who are saying that though they support the second reading of the bill, they do not support this timetable. I mean, this is 110 pages long. It has 125 pages of explanatory notes. The idea that you can really briskly go through something this fundamental is quite extraordinary. And I think there could be a loss for the government on the timetabling and that would really cause problems because everyone has been throwing up this morning, you know, in the past two years, we've had a, a for instance, a, a bill about animals in circuses, which went on for weeks. You know, so just before I came in, everyone's picking out, you know, a salmon bill in the uh, late 80s had two months of debate. The idea that you could do this in two days is quite extraordinary. Uh, Enrico, let, let me ask you a little bit about that, because many close to Boris Johnson continue to put this as Parliament versus the people, suggesting that MPs are self-interested and they're not respecting uh, democracy. But as Vincent elegantly describes there, it's anything but. Surely this is something, most significant constitutional change in generations that requires time, if nothing else. 
Of course it does. And this whole story sounds more and more like Groundhog Day, you know, the cult <laughs> movie, because we, we've been hearing this, that Parliament wants to stop democracy, the, you know, the House of Commons against the people for three years now. You know, first with Theresa May or now with Boris Johnson. It does not make uh, much sense. Uh, it, it, it's, a it's democratic to discuss it uh, uh, with all the time required to do so. On the other end, I think what Boris Johnson is playing for now is a certain feeling of fatigue that uh, is uh, among politicians, perhaps even among journalists. People, Surely not. People would like you know, to get it over. I met, uh, I have some friends who are passionately against Brexit at this point say, that's it, okay, you want it, have it, let's, let's turn this corner. Uh, and Vincent, I wonder, what about in Brussels? Is there, so, is there some of that ennui as well, even from obviously the fiercely committed uh, Europhiles there, the administrators, saying, actually, yeah. we've got to get them out. I mean, I, has that corner been turned, do you think? I think somewhat, yeah. I mean, just, you know, like with the UK, I mean, the whole bandwidth of our politics and national discourse has been taken up by this by for four years, essentially. Mm. There's so many other issues. And, you know, journalists like myself in the lobby, we sometimes play a game of what would the stories we would be covering were if it wasn't for this. So many big stories that just fall away, don't have the impact they normally would. And I think the same issue is going on in the EU. You know, last week, the French rejection of session for two new member states was just kind of a sideshow. It wasn't really, you know, it's being talked a lot about France, whether what Macron made the right decision or not, but it's not as big as it would be. You know, they haven't spent as much time talking about the issues that they want to get on with, the reforms that the EU needs to make, uh, issues of, you know, geopolitics, what they do about refugee crisis and things like that. They are quite stymied by having to deal with Brexit. What is interesting is I think they have really gotten themselves into the point where, you know, Donald Tusk today said, you know, whatever happens now, we are not responsible for no deal Brexit. And I think that was something that the UK could play a bit of as, a, you know, shifting the blame mm. towards Brussels a bit. But I think that Brussels can, you know, to the rest of the world, it is clear that it is the UK continuously stumbling over itself that, uh, you know, if it doesn't happen on October 31st, if we do crash out on October 31st, it is squarely to, with London, not with Brussels. And despite all the machismo from Johnson and others, though, Enric, about, about that no deal question, has the threat of a no deal has that receded as you as you see it? Because it's hard to see that we could get any kind of firm verdict from the from my seat by the thirty first of October. But has that no deal threat reduced well, significantly? Well, well, it does reduce because Parliament voted several times against it. On the other end, and that's why I call it Groundhog Day all over again, it always comes back. I was reading what Hillary Benn was saying today, mm. that uh, if... Uh, this Brexit bill is approved and then the uh, negotiations start on the future trade relations and uh, uh, by December 31st, 2020, there is not an agreement, the UK could still leave the European Union with no deal. So this is like, you know, you know there are jokes in, on social media where it shows, uh, you know, the world 2,999, you know, Britain is trying to leave the European Union. It's not easy to leave the European Union, it's not easy to leave a confederation or an association of states. Perhaps we should remember that the last time some states tried to leave the United States of America, there was a long war. 
Also, I think as well, just on this point, the, the blowback for the for the prime minister and the political classes, the idea that this is all gone away with on November the 1st. I mean, the way it's being spun to the British public is, you know, it's like you're pregnant, you'll give birth and then it's back to, you know, you can go out, sit mojitos, there won't be sleepless nights. It's like this is the hardest part coming. You know, this is trying to get a new deal is the hard part. This is just the withdrawal agreement. This is just paying our bill. The next stage in which at the moment on the current schedule, we only have a year to sort out and that is why uh, there's a bill being amendment being put down I just saw on the way in by um, Greg Bowles to expand that timetable to the 20 I think back to 2023 to have the normal amount of time we should have had without all of this delay coming into play and because the process has become so convoluted and uh, and if I can add on that I just read that uh, the UK and the EU have to decide by July 1st next July 1st, if they extend the transition period. So we have a one de- deadline after the other. I'm afraid it's repeats of Groundhog Day. <laughs> Very briefly, is there anywhere we can look for a potential solution to all of this complexity? I wonder, you know, we, we've seen frequently in, in Italy, for example, in Rico, you know, governments who are rendered completely impotent by the surrounding sort of political inertia of fragmentation. Lessons from Italian politics, perhaps, or somewhere else, or... It, I mean, it, this is kind of unprecedented, you know, isn't it? To, to, to have a joke about that, a member of the House of Lords who knows Italy told me the other day that, uh, yes, it's true that Italy sometimes always squeezed in out of um, apparently unresolvable situation. But he said Italy got used to being Italy. The UK not. It's something new. Enrico and Vincent, thank you both very much. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Daniel Bage with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Tom. Donald Trump says some American troops will stay in Syria, despite his recent call for them to be withdrawn. The U.S. president added they would protect oil fields while others would stay near Israel and Jordan. Trump has been heavily criticized for his decision to remove forces from Syria. Japan's Emperor Naruhito has formally proclaimed his ascension to the throne. This follows the abdication of his father, Emperor Akihito, earlier this year. But planned celebrations have been postponed out of respect for victims of the recent typhoon, which devastated large parts of the country. And today's Monocle Minute reports on the unstoppable rise of Nordstrom. The family-run department store chain shows no signs of shirking from bricks and mortar, and on Thursday will open its New York flagship on 57th Street. For more on this story, head over to monocle.com minute and subscribe to our Daily Digest. Those are some of the headlines we are following today. Now back to you, Tom. Thanks, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Tom Edwards here with Enrico Franceschini and Vincent Macavini. Next, let's talk about the results from Canada's election and look perhaps at what the narrow victory of Justin Trudeau means for progressive leaders and the populist movements they're squaring up against the world over. In Canada, the main Liberal and Conservative parties will both be disappointed with the results, which saw many voters turn left of centre in casting a ballot for Green or New Democrat candidates. Both picked up on Trudeau's failure to deliver on many of the progressive policies he campaigned on so vigorously four years ago. So how can he move forward and be an effective leader, one indeed of the few progressive prime ministers of leading democracies? Let's talk about what Trudeau's next move is. Vincent McAvinney, I'll come to you first. Um, Vincent, he's a progressive prime minister. It's a leading democracy. He's facing problems that we are now seeing in more and more countries. Uh, Minority governments, this sort of political inertia again. Mm. What's his next move? Any wise words for him? 
I mean, yeah, I mean, he's going to have to form a coalition. We've had experience of that uh, in the UK in recent years. In our experience of it, it, you know, David Cameron probably looks back at that time as a golden time because the coalition put a total check on the lunatic fringe of his party, which then destroyed him and is still working to destroy itself. Um, so, you know, there can be some upsides of it, especially as he's having to kind of tax the left. So that helps if he wants to be a progressive prime minister. Um, I think, you know... It's really interesting that Barack Obama did come... You know, Barack Obama is basically been on mute for the last three mm. years or so. He makes, you know, once maybe a quarter, we all are indulged with a nice uh, little bit of oratory from him. But the fact that he came out, I think it's because it tables like the G20 and at the G7. Trudeau has been an effective character, along with Angela Merkel, to be a kind of voice for internationalism, for international cooperation, for green issues. And, you know, Angela Merkel is likely to be departing at some point in the next year or 18 months. And so I think that the choice was to keep a voice like that in. Uh, That was why he got that endorsement. And that is kind of, you know, he has elevated... Canada on the international stage in the past few years, taking in refugees from Syria and other countries wouldn't, standing up to Saudi Arabia. Um, You know, it'll be interesting to see what he does now, because it is so interesting in this campaign that, you know, the thing that really thwarted him was something, I think, if you just started this campaign and said, this is the issue, you know, wearing blackface and not being able to say how many times you did it, and then and you said, guess which politician did this? I don't think anyone would have guessed it would have been Justin Trudeau. Hmm. Um, Enrico, what about, it's interesting that Vinny's alluding to it there, this idea of maybe Trudeau having a certain star power on the international stage, playing to the international gallery whilst at home, you know, his travails are rather more serious. I guess, you know, Manuel Macron has had this, a similar experience. Do, do you think, though, that his international, um, his sort of scintillating youthful progressive quality, is it taking a, a real knock on the, on, the, on the global stage as well, Trudeau? Well, I, I don't think so. I, I think that uh, what's happening in Canada with Trudeau, it's a proof of how quickly, uh, you know, support for a leader can evaporate uh, nowadays. A few months ago, I think six months ago, the Economist, I think, had the cover story and a special uh, issue about Canada as an example for the Western world to follow. And now we are talking about all the problems and he basically didn't win or won a, a weak victory. Um, but... Um, Maybe we should be less uh, severe uh, with Trudeau. I mean, I understand a lot of people are angry, but it, it reminds me, Vincent um, quoted uh, Obama. This, uh, a friend of mine did an interview with Barack Obama uh, after a few years who was in power. And then after the interview, um, off the record, he said, what a journalist maybe should not said. He said, we all support you, you know. And, and Obama answered him, you have no idea how difficult it is to even have a little progress, to do a little thing hmm. better. And, and and that's a, what I think we should look at Canada's Trudeau. Yes, he has he had problems, he made gaffes and, and, and errors, but uh, it was, he has been a, a good force. Uh, I think he has been a step ahead. And, well, and as a given that the populists didn't make perhaps the gains that they certainly wanted and perhaps many anticipated in Canada, is Trudeau then still the sort of best bet? If we look at that brand Canada, which Henrik was talking about there, I mean, he's still a, a safe pair of hands, I guess? Yeah, it's, it would look like on the international stage. I think interesting as well, looking at the results, you know, the far right party in Canada didn't do, you know, any, get any ground. And that is an mm. interesting lesson. I think we are starting to see that 
in Europe as well in elections that they've been in Europe. And we're starting to kind of see it shifting in the UK and possibly in the US that, you know, deplatforming people, we've all gotten used to, you know, don't feed the trolls as becoming a very good message. Don't elevate these messages of hate by these people. You know, if they get deplatformed on social media, they can, you know, it stops spreading their, you know, xenophobia and their abstract racism. And that seems to have worked quite well in Canada. Um, but yeah, I think for, you know, for brand Canada, I think what will be interesting, you know, Justin Trudeau immediately got up in that speech. So it was interesting that he immediately, his top priority was climate. He mm-hmm. said it's about fighting climate. And I think he will very much, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next couple of weeks, Greta Thunberg, who I know is traveling in the US right now, is suddenly up in Canada and Trudeau will be meeting her and there'll be new pledges. Um, and, you know, it is tricky because they are a country that is a resource producer, you know, the issues he's had with this pipeline. But I think he'll very much start to tack onto the kind of international green message and try and rebuild his brand with that. And I wonder, are there any wider lessons? If we look back over the last sort of 18 months to two years, there's often this narrative about the rise of populism. We've seen it all across Europe. Um, and we see gains and then maybe some uh, defeats that were perhaps a little surprising, whether it's for the AFD or parties in Italy or in Spain or in France or here in the UK. Um, and a, a conversation that we often come back to around this table is about the sort of, you know, the left, the centre left in crisis, um, a failure of innovation, a failure of coherence. Um, certainly that's what seems to be happening in the centre left in this country at the moment. Um, is that talk of crisis, though, exaggerated? Do we sometimes need to just take a step back and say, look, it's not all it's not all as, as bleak as it might have appeared, say, two years, three years ago? It is true that a lot of people are angry. But it's also true, I believe, that uh, um, we exaggerate sometimes. We have to see things in context. Uh, We journalists or political commentators commentators always try to find the logic in things after they happen. But if we uh, remember that uh, 60,000 more votes for Hillary Clinton would have made the, gave her, her the White House and she obtained three and a half million votes in the popular vote, more than Trump, we could have been here saying, ah, you see, progressive have been mm. on a wave. So, who knows? Um, there, there is a logic, but there is also an irrational aspect in politics. And uh, in this irrational aspect, I'd like to try to find the logic in the fact that uh, Trump, uh, the Trudeau's victory will be a prelude to the defeat of Donald Trump. <laughs> I think that's a really good point. Because I think, you know, politicians and journalists particularly, you know, we thrive on this stuff. We like living on Twitter. We like every twist and turn. The vast majority of people just want to get on with their lives, do their jobs, raise their families, see their friends, have a nice life. And I think part of why Trump is failing is that, the you know, the world is fatigued by it. And Americans are fatigued. Mm. And it's, you know, not having to worry every time a news alert pops up on your phone as to what is happening. I think that is maybe why there's this turn away from populists as well, is that, like, it creates so much chaos, it creates so much background noise, it, you know, it creates a window for behaviours which, you know, five years ago we wouldn't have said were, were acceptable, that we're now having to actively debate. And I think that people just don't want that kind of irresponsibility leading countries. Well, I didn't want to go down the sort of the, the Trumpian rabbit hole, but just on that point from both of you, is there, is there a sense then, that, I don't know, is it, if not optimism, cautious optimism or a measure of... I don't know, aspiration that maybe he won't win in 2020? Because it seems to me that many of those 
members of the American public who are suffering from that sort of ennui at the protest just say, yeah. well, look, leave him there, he's doing fine, and that, that could carry him back. Do, do you think something's changed even just think, in the last few yeah, months? Yeah, I think, I think it has. I think the impeachment change, uh, you know, a lot of that Fox poll that shocked everyone where impeachment and removed got 51%, and the fact that he is under investigation, it is revealing so many more crimes, so many more people, are, you know, Rudy Giuliani is so engulfed in this, and it's obviously affecting his mental state, which wasn't healthy anyway, and that he's really going off. And I think the key thing is that they need to, the Democrats need to shift these hearings. I get that at the moment there's a need to protect some secrecy in, in the whistleblowing, especially. They need to make them public and get them out there every day because that is what happened with Watergate, just that daily revelation and seeing the drug. People want to see the clips. But, I mean, two caveats on that are... You know, he can always point to the economy. He points on the high employment figures and the stock market doing well. That always doesn't trickle down to how people feel. But if that starts to really buckle uh, with the trade war, then that could be the shift that Democrats really need. The second thing is they have to get a fair election. And, you know, Stacey Abrams, who effectively should be the governor of Georgia now in America, but was there was gerrymandering. The guy she was running against was the returning officer. You know, she's is setting up this task force to try and stop you know, uh, voter suppression around in every state in the US. But they need to, yeah, stop voter suppression. You know, they are dealing with some gerrymandered maps, but also the social media companies, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is still allowing on Facebook adverts which are completely unfactual, which aren't being allowed to run, you know, rejected by the TV networks as, you know, you cannot run this. And Facebook needs to face up to the fact, and it is surprising that they haven't really, I, you know, Nick Clegg, former British Deputy Prime Minister, is, is now, you know, on the board of Facebook, a senior person about engaging governments worldwide. Facebook makes billions of dollars from advertising the political advertising it makes money from is, you know, nothing to them. It's a drop in a bucket to them. Why the reputational damage is so bad, and they don't seem to have learned the lesson from 2016, you know, for their own reputation, for their own platform. So many, you know, most people I know of my own age, you know, I'm in my early 30s, you know, everyone is just getting, you know, every day there's another status, my Facebook's being deactivated, I'm getting rid of it, and and they're going. And okay, yeah, they might still be using Instagram or WhatsApp, which are owned by Facebook, but people are just t- driven away from Facebook now. And I think that if, if the social media companies don't step up, that could help Trump with his message because he is very good and his team are very good at getting those ads out. And whilst the Democrats are all fighting each other, they're not focusing on the narrative that's being built on social media that goes unseen because you have to be within the kind of bubble to see the the targeted ads which are kind of creating false narratives. Uh, let's pop back to the UK uh, briefly. No more Brexit, gentlemen, I promise. Uh, Drivers of zero emission vehicles could be given green number plates in hopes it would make it easier to benefit from clean air schemes and as could be introduced as part of the government's plans to cut emissions uh, to help the country produce net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. We've had them in Ontario, Canada, special number plates. Drivers of electric vehicles get free access to toll lanes. Uh, That's resulted in an increase in electric vehicle registrations. Enrico, would this work? If you could drive in the bus lane and all sorts of other advantages, would you plump for an electric vehicle? Maybe you own one already. No, I don't, but I would. I, would. <laughs> I think it's a great idea and I would expand on that. You know, I would give, you know, like a, a green uh, jacket to everybody who does something uh, to protect uh, like at the from, from climate change. <laughs> yeah. Like at the masses, you know, and where, where you can get access, you know, no lines for prayer anymore if you buy something that is green. I think I would like to join this this club, Enrico. We should talk more about this. Um, does, it, does it matter then, Vinny, do you think, if... Okay, there's a bit of an inducement 
It, as long yeah, as we I get think, people doing the right things, we shouldn't worry, should we? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's a really good idea. I think you know the privileges it prevails is good. You know, if you're looking at buying a car now, you know they are still more expensive. There has to be some enticement to buying it because it's a big upfront cost, mm-hmm. and especially people coming to buying their first cars as well. Um, you know, it is such a kind of big outlay, and I get that you don't, you know, petrol, the refuel prices and everything. But the government needs to do everything possible. I think they should go further, and there should be, you know, a car scrappage scheme like there was after the financial crash in the UK, where older vehicles you get a trade-in cost from them to get them just off the road and buy more. And I think this, you know, giving perks like this will encourage people. My one criticism is that green is a horrible colour, <laughs> and it kind of ruins the aesthetic of a car to kind of, you know, to kind of have this like green license, you know. Maybe we could just have a leaf in the corner or something like that, but um, that would be my one. Very, my one very elegant. So it's, yeah. really, it's sort of a branding perspective. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's no worry that this is shifting the burden or the onus onto the the consumer, the the little guy. I mean, isn't the real question here that it's a governmental uh, issue to really tackle this in a meaningful way? If we're talking about hitting these targets within mm. inside three decades, does actually what Joe Public does. Does that actually make a difference? I mean, I think The Guardian's been running a really good campaign recently about targeting the polluters because, do you know what, governments can only do so much because they are beholden to the politics of the population and things like that. But footfall, you know, it's, why did, you know, if you're looking about civil rights movement, boycotts and protests of, you know, use your purse, basically. And if companies, you know, the 20 biggest polluting companies in the world need to start sitting up and realising that they need to do more. And if people start you know, buying more green cars and they're kind of being nudged towards it and there are incentives, they can't avoid the reality that people, whatever disinformation they're putting out claiming that climate change isn't real, I think people start, you know, are really waking up to it a lot more than they ever did. You know, there's been a real revival in it. And if they see the numbers of green cars being bought are rapidly rising, then your BT, BPs, your Shells, all of those companies will note that this is going to hit, you know, even if we are going to further flung more risky places to drill for oil, well, there might not be the market for it anyway. So let's pivot and invest in this technology. Let's get the prices down on it. Let's, you know, I think that it needs that. It needs the consumer to really drive this. And we're seeing it already with the way, you know, you can't, certain stores you go into now, you can't get plastic bags. You get a paper bag. Mm. This has been, you know, you can, stores, businesses will react rapidly to this kind of stuff. Um, Enrico, I'm just thinking about your green jackets. You'd have to have different ones for different seasons, would you? What, what would I'm the winter be? I'm wearing one now. <laughs> wearing one now. Maybe off. a big parka, something like that. Yes, yes. Why Summertime, not? a you t-shirt. Know, if, if you if you don't like the color for the car, yes, I go for a little leaf, something, a, 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 a green lapel, point. Lapel badge. Exactly, something green. Vincent and Enrico, thank you both very much indeed. In a moment, the latest opinion from the editorial floor at Monocle when we look at the art of protest. You're with Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Tom Edwards. Finally today, anyone who's caught even a few minutes of the nightly Brexit news coverage here in Britain has probably heard the xylophone man. For our international listeners, this gentleman seems to spend most of his evenings playing tunes on a xylophone outside Parliament within a few metres of the areas reserved for journalists, often treating viewers of the major networks to an array of tunes played all through their evening news bulletin. The ongoing Brexit saga has certainly given light to some, shall we say, interesting methods of political protest. Monocle's affairs editor, Chris Chermack, takes out his tuning fork for a closer look. Or should that be, listen? Over the weekend, my father, who's Austrian, 
Message to ask if I was joining the hundreds of thousands standing in front of the UK's parliament for the big march in favour of a second referendum on Brexit. I wasn't there, but this weekend the subject of protests has been on my mind and on show. From London to Lebanon and Chile to Hong Kong, people of all political stripes have massed to be heard. But can such meetings add up to meaningful change? In a word, yes. Just look at Lebanon. Not only are demonstrations forcing the government to pass economic reforms and reverse a rather bizarre proposal to tax WhatsApp messages, but it has brought the country's various religious groups together in a common anti-corruption cause. Success might be less obvious in London or even Hong Kong, but it's there if you look. In the UK, it may be too late to reverse Brexit, but it could nudge London to maintain closer ties with the EU down the line and remind Parliament of its wafer-thin mandate to decide this most permanent and far-reaching of rulings. I've attended plenty of protests over the years. My favourite has to be the 2010 rally to restore sanity and or fear in Washington. I invite you to Google it. I've always gone as an unbiased reporter rather than an active participant, but that shouldn't stop all of you from showing your colours. If Lebanon shows us anything, it's that fighting, albeit peacefully, is worthwhile, even if there's only an outside chance of change. That was Chris Chermak, and that's all for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 20.00 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design, hosted by Josh Fennett. And Monocle's House View returns, of course, at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time, 1300 in Toronto. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening.